Rosh Hashanah spoke about mistakes making us. Our mistakes and what we do with them is what shapes our lives. To me, one of the most remarkable practices of any tradition in the world is this business we do on Yom Kippur as Jews. That we come together and the central part of our liturgy is about admitting that we have failed. It's admitting our mistakes out loud. What an incredible thing to model for children, for our adolescents, for our emerging adults, that a community that takes itself seriously, morally, and ethically stands and says out loud all of the ways that we have made mistakes in the past year. We all say it together. We admit that we have failed. But Alain de Ponton, quoting William James, says, we're not always humiliated by failing at things. We are humiliated only if we invest our pride and sense of worth in a given aspiration or achievement and then are disappointed in our pursuit of it. In other words, we can only fail at something that we have set as a goal that we want to achieve. So articulating our failures on Yom Kippur, looking at the liturgy, we do it very specifically, these iterations of failures, in order to remind ourselves and to say out loud in front of our children what it is that we think we're supposed to have set as a goal and failed to reach. Too often when we think of what we have failed at, it's not about being a better person. Does being more patient, more generous, more compassionate, more just, more righteous, does that usually make even the top five of things that we're frustrated at having failed at achieving? Fasting on Yom Kippur, putting ourselves through this physical deprivation is about cultivating regret for the things we're supposed to believe are important that we failed at. Vidui, the confession, is a way of saying this is what we think as a people we're supposed to value and really regret hitting the mark by falling short. And shuva, this business of repentance and return, for us is a statement of existential hope that we can come together and admit that we haven't even had the right things as our goals to fail at and that we failed at them too and that we really believe if we do that and we regret it enough, we will have motivation to do it differently, to change, to become better people. And so we go through this business of rehearsing our own deaths Traditionally, one wears a burial shroud today. We wear white shroud-like garments to remind ourselves, literally one day, we will wear this in a box. Our mortality is something we call up and experience viscerally on Yom Kippur, not to scare us into depression. Instead, to wake us up 
so that we can really understand that we don't know what's coming. But even let's say we're going to live long, healthy, amazing, wonderful lives, that's great. But really confronting our mortality helps with a sense of urgency about changing, about doing it differently, about changing our priorities and what we say we aspire to. It makes us ask the hard questions, what Rabbi Gordon Tucker calls the Neila questions. If you're with us, I hope later for the service of Neila, the last service of Yom Kippur, the liturgy asks, Ma'anu, what are we? Ma'chayenu, what is our life about? Mechasdenu, what is our loving kindness directed towards? Matsidkenu, what is our righteousness? Ma'yishenu, ma'kochenu, what is our strength? Ugvurotenu, and our courage. Where and to what ends are we employing those things? Ma'anu, what are we? These are long-range questions, long-term thinking. Who is it that we want to become? What do we want to model for our young people? These are the long questions of a guiding narrative called Jewish tradition, Jewish history, the arc of Jewish millennia of philosophy and questioning and exploring what it means to be good and ethical people. You might have heard on Rosh Hashanah that I have located my biological family. In discussing with my Lithuanian cousin, whose hobby is this ancestry business, he's done all this research and went to Lithuania and met our Lithuanian family. And he says, I found out that several relatives of ours were sent to the Gulag in Siberia where a couple of your mother's second cousins died as infants, and where our great-grandfather's brother died as well. I found that this was in part because Eddie and Joe's cousin, Bolius, was part of an anti-Soviet underground guerrilla movement. Bolius died in his early 20s because of his love for freedom, too. And what he writes about that, he says, I've discovered that there really is greatness in the Lithuanian side, Bravery and love of freedom I hardly imagined existed. Who I dismissed before as simple farmers with a simple life were actually brave and faithful in the face of death and oppression. And I'm proud to say I'm related to them. Surely we all feel this way about someone. Samuel Bernstein, his family sacrificed so he could come from Lithuania and escape being conscripted into the Tsar's army, as so many young men were. His great-great-grand, my great-great-grandmother on the Bernstein side stole a passport off a visiting American, risking her life. That visiting American's name was Bernstein. She gave it to her son and said, get out, leave. And there was only one passport. She knew what that meant. They all knew what that meant. But that's what they were ready to do, the generations before us, who were ready to sacrifice everything, to live lives as humble farmers or in the Schmata business, in the Bernstein family case. It was about giving their children something of value, an opportunity to become more, to become better. What would we 
sacrifice our comfort and safety for? What is it that we want to communicate to our children? What do they think? Go home and ask them. What do they think we would give everything for? Ma Anu, what are we? Are we helping our young people ask the question, Mahem, what are they? Do we really care what they're becoming? We have so much focus now on salary and status so we can have more luxury, more power, more influence, whatever, an illusion of safety if we reach, I don't know, the Senate. But what we're doing is we're stressing out our kids. We're running them all over the place to put things on their resume so they can get into a good college. And then when they get into a good college, they're absolutely anxious. William Dershowitz, in a book called Excellent Sheep, who quit Yale. He was there for 10 years in Columbia, five years before that. He quit because of what he saw happening to our college students and our graduate students. He said, so extreme are the admission standards now that kids who manage to get into elite colleges have, by definition, never experienced anything but success. The prospect of not being successful terrifies them, disorients them. The cost of falling short, even temporarily, becomes not merely practical, but existential. The result is a violent aversion to risk. You have no margin for error, so you avoid the possibility that you will ever make an error. For what? Learning to cope with failure is a normal part of development. We need to teach our young people it's okay to fail. That's what we do when we stand up here and say it out loud. It's okay. What matters is what you're reaching for. Finding a life of meaning and interest takes a circuitous route. They have to try lots of things and fail to find fulfillment there or success there and try something else. And for that, they need to learn, in the words of Rabbi Yael Shai, they need to learn to fall. She writes, the only way to conquer failure is to fail and to realize that it did not kill you. Then we can learn to fall and to risk so that we grow and transform. I revisited a work on learning to fall called Learning to Fall recently. Written by Philip Simmons, a young man in his 30s diagnosed with ALS. And as he began to lose his balance, as his speech began to slur, knowing exactly what was coming, knowing that he would be living locked in by the end, he chose a response to his situation. And it's a beautiful book called Learning to Fall. He tells a story of falling down and hitting the pavement in front of his six-year-old daughter, who said to him, Dad, what are you doing down there? He says, I wish I could have managed an answer such as practicing my yoga or listening for hoofbeats. 
But what I was doing was learning to fall. He said, the problem is those of us who are healthy and preoccupied and distracted and so worried about success, we tend to treat life as a set of problems to be solved. And that's where we go wrong. He says, at its deepest levels, life is not a problem, but a mystery. Personally, I wish I could have learned this lesson more easily without perhaps having to give up my tennis game. But each of us finds his or her own way to mystery. Each of us is brought to the cliff's edge. At such moments, we can either back away in bitterness and confusion or leap forward into mystery. And we can only do this He says, by letting go of solutions. And this letting go is the first lesson of falling and the hardest. Yom Kippur is designed to bring us to the edge of the cliff, to face our own mortality so that we can learn and model for our children that it's important to learn to fall. In his words, a fuller consciousness of my own mortality has been my best guide to being more fully alive. Dostoevsky spent some time musing what it would be like to be Philip Simmons in his book, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, where a judge is laying on his deathbed in physical agony at the end. But his moral agony is what's really torturing him. And in the words of Dostoevsky, he thinks to himself, the judge It occurred to him that those scarcely perceptible impulses of his to protest at what people of high status considered good, vague impulses, which he had always suppressed, might have been precisely what mattered, and all the rest had not been the real thing. His official duties, his manner of life, the values adhered to by people in society and in his profession, all these might not have been the real thing. He was at a place, this character, Philip Simmons, was in a place of knowing there was nothing else to be done. They were asking the Naila questions. I was brought back to this text of Philip Simmons because I spoke at Rosh Hashanah about one change in my life this summer. The other is that my mother has had a series of devastating strokes that has left her paralyzed and unable to speak. She's not expected to recover. So all day, every day, I move in and out of what it must be for her right now to only have Naila questions left to worry about or to care about knowing you won't ever achieve anything else. Your salary's not going to go down. Your reputation's not going to change. What is that reputation? What have you left behind? We are brought to the Naila questions by our tradition out of great wisdom so that we can ask the Naila questions now because someday... We're going to be where Philip Simmons and my mother, Jean Bernstein, are. 
And we're encouraged to live in such a way that we have rich answers to the Ne'ila questions when it's our time. If we can learn to fall, if we can learn to fail, so that we can risk striving and risk achieving what we decide should matter most, then we achieve what Philip Simmons of Blessed Memory, who died in 2012, says. What will we fall away from? We fall from ego. We fall from our carefully constructed identities, our reputations, our precious selves. We fall from ambition. We fall from grasping. We fall at least temporarily from reason. And what do we fall into? We fall into passion, into terror, into unreasoning joy. We fall into humility, into compassion, into emptiness, into oneness with forces larger than ourselves, into oneness with others who we realize are likewise falling. We fall at last into the presence of the sacred, into godliness, into mystery, into our better, diviner natures. May we learn to fall this Yom Kippur. Good job.